Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Patterson, and today I'm speaking with Michelle Silver about her new book, Retirements and Its Discontents, Why We Don't Stop Working Even If We Can. Welcome to the show, Michelle. Thank you, Sarah. So can you start us off by telling us about yourself? Well, sure. Um, I uh, am an assistant professor at the University of Toronto. Um, I've got lots of different appointments. My primary um, is in sociology, in the Department of Sociology, and in the Interdisciplinary Center for Health and Society. Um, And that's where I teach uh, undergrads, and I um, also teach graduate students through the Dalana School of Public Health and IHPME. And I've got some more appointments um, <laughs> in there as well in the Institute for Life Course and Aging. Um, but that's that's that those are my primary um, titles. Great. How did this book come about for you? So this book um, was about a five year journey for me. Um, I would say it started really um, the inspiration for the book um, started when I closed my father's practice and essentially retired him. Um, so as a, as a young person um, in my twenties, my father developed dementia and um, it, it came to a point where it was clear that we needed to close down uh, his practice. And so um, my siblings did the lion's share of the work with regard to addressing many of uh, the challenges associated with with his caregiving. But um, one of the things that I did was um, like literally uh, take out his files and close up his office. And um, that experience really reinforced the significance of work on individual identity, and by essentially retiring my dad while he really wasn't uh fully aware of what you know wasn't really fully able to process the significance of what was happening i think that process sort of like um led me to take on more of uh the potential implications of what of what retirement could mean because for him work had been um a really important uh piece of his life so, um, so you know, at that point, um, or there near near that point in my life, I uh, started a PhD at University of Chicago, and um, when it came time to think about uh, my you know focus, I realized that retirement was something that I was you know really interested in in learning more about, and so my training at University of Chicago is really um, largely in econometrics and modeling, and so I looked at. Uh, retirement trajectories and the relationship between um, the type of work someone retired from and uh, health outcomes, um, measures like depressive symptoms. And, you know, the point was sort of to do this modeling over time to look at, you know, um, in relation to how people fared uh, in, you know, sets of years after retiring relative to how they were before retiring. Um, sort of trying to address some of the um, concerns in research on health and retirement. And um, anyway, so like needless to say, I spent lots of years studying data points and thinking about what it meant to be retired and what this construct was. And looking at and thinking about different ways that economists define retirement, that labor force status matters. And um, and I guess, um, long story short, I, I eventually was able to do some qualitative training later and to um, get some funding to do my own studies. And there, um, that sort of led me into 
um, one of the first studies, which then led into what was five different studies that are um, the heart of my book, Retirement and Its Discontents. And there I was able to do qualitative interviews with subsets of people for whom um, their personal identity was very deeply intertwined with their work identity and for whom retirement was a really challenging and interesting transition. So you said your dad was a doctor, but how did you come to choose your sample? And then also, um, can you explain more about your methods and the the reflection that you have in your uh, methodological appendix, which I think is interesting as a researcher myself, um, in terms of your position, you know, at your age, and then, you know, interviewing your um, participants? So, um, yeah, so actually, uh, my dad was a social worker, and... um, uh, and, and his uh, his transition really, yeah, it led me to think a lot about what it means to be retired. Um, and yeah, as you mentioned, um, in my appendix, I describe how it's really important for me to um, reflect on my own potential biases as an interviewer, as a researcher, and to recognize that, you know, for one, I have never retired personally, right? I have this somewhat personal experience with it, but I, but I haven't done it myself. And that's really important because there's lots of beautiful books that have been written about uh, the experience of retiring from people who made the personal transition. So um, yeah, so I guess on the one hand, I can, I cannot be accused of me search. On the other hand, you know, I, I am writing about something that I didn't personally experience that I, um, that I just became fascinated with. And that's sort of important too, right? To acknowledge that it is a a topic, a social construct, a phenomenon, retirement, um, that I find fascinating and, um, and, and not everybody does. Right. And so, you know, I sometimes tell people that I, uh, I study retirement and their eyes gloss over and they're like, wow, how boring. <laughs> and I'm like, no, actually, how interesting that we have this, this term that everybody knows and that's so widely used and that nowadays, uh, pretty much everyone is expected to, uh, think about or make the transition to. And yet nobody really knows what to expect. Um, sorry, can you tell me again, the, the, you had a bunch of questions there and I, I want to make sure I'm, I'm hitting them properly. Yeah. So the, I mean, you answered basically what I was asking, but in terms oh, of, yes. Okay. So, well, yeah, that flows quite well from, um, from what I was describing, which was that I was really eager to talk to people about their retirement experiences. Um, when I first, uh, started my career as a, you know, professional, as an academic. And, um, and so, um, the first sample of people that I, um, interviewed were homemakers and that's the last, uh, you know, subset that I talk about and whose stories I share in the book. But, um, but that's, that was the first group that I, um, got funding to do a study with and they really were and I think still are the most extreme example because no economist would ever define a homemaker as a retiree or let someone who who said they were um retired uh, uh let someone who who was who had you know no essentially no paid labor force participation um, identify as a retiree, but um, I did a, a larger study about um, women's retirement experiences, and and a subset of of that study was focusing in on women who self-identified as having been homemakers and identified as being retired, and um, and so you know from there from that study I, I sort of followed up with with a subset um, and did you know repeat interviews with uh with women who told me about you know what it meant to be retired and and what um what their experiences were like going through that transition and i i know we'll talk about that um a bit later as as you um you described the the format of for our conversation um but i'll i'll just yeah i'll just say that you know even though 
they are quite unique as a subgroup. They are they were quite unique and heterogeneous within themselves, like from one another. Um, I also um, have done quite a bit of work looking at um, physicians' retirement, and um, and so uh, from there, um, how did I get the sample? Was uh, I actually was contacted by a um, chair or head of a, a department of medicine who said, Hey, I heard you study retirement and, uh, we're having some trouble <laughs> with the physicians in our unit, uh, with regard to retirement. Uh, what do you think about doing a study and helping us think through some of these issues? And, um, and I obviously I'm so grateful for that experience. It led into um, a whole number of different studies about uh, physician retirement and um, and in particular academic physicians' retirement, which is sort of a exacerbated um, role because there's so many sub roles within the uh, umbrella of an academic physician, right? They're not just doctors, but they're also academics and are responsible for teaching. Uh, within medicine, so um, that 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 was another study um, that sort of followed from having uh, identified as someone who studies retirement. Um, from there, uh, studying academics uh, was a sort of natural follow up, and another study that I did, and um, and then interestingly, the campus that I um, that I uh, teach at uh, one of the campuses I teach at, but the, my primary campus, um, University of Toronto Scarborough, uh, built an athletic center for the Toronto Pan Am Games, and it became the uh, best and you know most fabulous uh, athletic facility, particularly with regard to um, the pools and and other aspects, other features uh, in Canada. Um, I think that was in 2015. The um, the building was uh, was you know de- built. And anyway, um, what happened was uh, I started to I, I had some other projects going there, and I, I was interacting with uh, some very young looking people who identified as being retired. And uh, anyway, like long story short, from there I connected with a set of people who were former Olympic athletes um, from all over the world. Eventually, I was able to connect up um, to a, uh, a sample of, of people who were, yeah, from all over. Um, but, you know, this facility brought in uh, coaches and trainers from all over the world. And anyway, I eventually uncovered that these that many of these individuals were uh, athletes themselves and, in fact, very elite high-performance athletes um, uh, to the extent that they had, uh, yeah, represented their countries at the Olympic Games, so um, so that that sample sort of came out of um, the luck of being on a campus that had a world class athletic facility. Um, not everybody I interviewed w- worked at the facility, but it was a really great launching pad for being able to talk to people who identified as retiring from elite sport. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think. I think I covered all the groups. Oh, the CEOs. I also interviewed CEOs and, um, and that came out of giving some present, giving a presentation, um, about, uh, physician retirement. And afterwards, uh, a gentleman came up to me and said, that was a really interesting talk, uh, about, you know, physician retirement. Um, a lot of what you said, uh, seems like it might be relevant to CEOs. And and I looked at him and I was like, what did you not hear a word I said? Like, how is that possible there? That's, you know, this like totally different world. And he, and, uh, and and he said, you know, well, have you thought about studying and interviewing CEOs? And, um, and I honestly was just like, okay, uh, this is, (laughs) this is unlikely here. Um, but he, he then identified as having just retired from having been the CEO of a large medical institution and said that, um, you know, while there were differences, there were a lot of what I had said resonated with him and that, and, and then he acknowledged that he thought it would probably be a little bit different, but uh, worth pursuing and, um, and kindly uh, sort of helped me get that sample going. 
of uh, people who had retired from the position of having been a CEO. So that's that. That's each of the samples um, in the book. Um, you know, the, the the sort of short story is they were each um, studies of uh, larger studies of individuals with these work identities. And for the book, what I did, as as you mentioned, as I um, describe in more detail in the um, methodological appendix, um, the people I interviewed for the book are subsets of those um, larger studies. They're people who I sort of pulled out as having struggled with the transition to retirement and who I, re- who I interviewed repeatedly um, to talk about that, to talk about what it meant to retire, what they thought, what their expectations had been about retirement, um, what their work experiences, you know, initially, you know, to talk about what their work experiences had been and what they thought retirement was going to be like. And then, um, and then to talk me through their transition to retirement and experiences as a retiree. So you start with doctors and here it's an interesting example because people are just completely devoted to this work. And I thought it was interesting that your participant Emil says that he even felt like a deserter. So I was hoping you could tell us more about what the doctors experienced in their retirement. Yeah. Emil, for example, he, he described his retirement as uh, feeling like a renegade, right? He felt like when he retired, like he had deserted his life's, his life's work. And um, the, uh, yeah, the, the physicians that I interviewed, uh, the stories that they shared showed how their strong personal connections with work had a price. Um, it included low engagement with their family commitments and with other spheres of interest in their life. Some of them talked about um, not really having time for hobbies or if they had hobbies that their kids were their hobby <laughs> or things that other people might take issue with describing as hobbies. And, um, and it, it, they talked about, you know, retirement as a challenge because, you know, for example, friends described how fun it was to play golf and, hey, let's go play golf now that you're retired. And the physicians explained to me, you know, I've always been really good at what I do um, and I've never really had time for golf. So, you know, all of a sudden the idea of going and getting on the golf course when it's something I'm not particularly good at is entirely unappealing. Um, You know, I've always been good at what I do. So, you know, eventually the key characteristics that made them great doctors, their total commitment to their work uh, was also a key barrier to finding contentment in the retirement. Uh, I I talk about the greedy institution uh, that is medicine and how from an early age, physicians are acculturated to, um, you know, focusing in on on their work. Uh, They're woken up when they're on call in the middle of the night and expected to immediately shift into that you know, work role, which sometimes requires that they make uh, life and death decisions. And so, you know, to go from being 150% for, you know, to giving all of that of yourself to zero was really a challenge. And another interesting example from the chapter on doctors is Walter, who's a rural doctor. So I was hoping you could talk about his sort of interesting perspective that he brings to this retirement issue. Sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, so Walter's story was really quite interesting um, in that uh, he had a really hard time replacing them himself um, because, as you mentioned, he was a rural physician, and um, and eventually, you know, the the bottom line to his story was that he eventually found a couple, found two people to take over his practice and to do what he by himself had done, um, you know, which is also quite remarkable and telling. Um, but, it, you know, he's also a sort of contrast to to many of uh, the other physicians because, or actually many of the other people in the book, because many of them talked about or expressed this sort of sentiment that, you know, the institution 
will fail without me, you know, that like, um, people, you know, just can't carry on. And so, uh, uh, you know, how, how can I, how can I retire and, and leave, uh, everything. And, uh, that's something that's come up in, in some of my other studies of, uh, in particular academic physicians, but, um, but Walter was, you know, eagerly <laughs> trying to retire, trying to, um, uh, find someone to replace him to find a successor um you know at one point he tried to give away his practice for free and and couldn't find any takers and and um it was it was a quite quite a struggle um you know he when his wife got very ill and eventually passed away um he you know he really wanted to give up his practice but it, it wouldn't be for another um several years that he actually was able to to make that transition to retirement so you know his was a real struggle um for for a number of reasons and um and, and i would say you know maybe one of the biggest contrasts in terms of the stories that are shared in the book um, so then you move um, on to CEOs, and some of these people were actually forced into retirement. So I was hoping you could talk more about that. Yeah. So so the the CEOs were um, were really quite quite remarkable. Um, you know, media representations and advertisements foster these images of wealthy retirees playing golf and enjoying the fruits of their labor. On, you know, going on cruises. Uh, you know, sitting in side by side bathtubs at the edge of a cliff overlooking the ocean, right? Like you, you've seen these airbrushed uh, media ads, and they really portray this um, idea that you know uh, retirement is a time to enjoy the fruit of your labor, and and who better to enjoy the fruit of his or her labor than you know a CEO, someone who often retires with great wealth and you know has you know achieved the highest ranks of professional engagement for their field um and yet the CEOs that I interviewed uh for their book for the for this book um had excelled at developing their careers but they weren't and they were not as good or not as competent at developing a life that was distinct from their work identity and so, you know, each of them advanced in a career that rewarded deep commitment, like the physicians. Um, and, you know, similarly, their work tended to penetrate every aspect of their life. But then at a certain point, usually around 60 years old, um, they were expected to relinquish that position of power and to forego that part of their identity that had been such an important source of fulfillment for themselves. And so I would say in various ways, they were forced into retiring. Some of it was self-imposed, right? Um, so one of the um, stories that, I, that are shared is of uh, Ted, who um, had been the CEO of a large non-for-profit uh, health plan organization. And, and he, he talked about, you know, having this idea in his head that he needed to retire at 55. And... Um, you know, some of it had to do with, uh, his, you know, father's retirement. Some of it had to do with, you know, media ads he had seen that linked that age 55 with retiring. Um, you know, he described how at 55, he had worked for over 10,000 hours. So he, you know, met that minimum <laughs> level of commitment and um, had, you know, missed quite a lot of his children's lives and upbringing and, and that sort of thing um, that sort of fell to his wife. And, and he got to a point where he just had this idea that retirement would be uh, a great experience for him. Um, and, and so in some ways, I would say he forced himself into it. Um, then much of what I, what I talk about, what, what is shared um, is his experience of feeling, you know, no longer grounded of, of sort of feeling the rug pulled out from under him, yet he pulled it up. He pulled it out himself. Um, and his story, I think, is sort of echoed through several of the other um, people who, who are interviewed in that chapter. Um, another one, uh, Bob, um, another CEO, talks about 
retirement in a way that is sort of akin to a mistress. And uh, he talks about how when he retired, he found himself sort of secretly thinking about work and wondering if the, somebody would call him or, or pick up the phone and, and just like let him know that he was still desirable, that he was still needed. And yet, you know, uh, part of the role of CEO is being the one where the buck stops, being, you know, an independent decision maker. And so it's it's very uncommon, I learned, for CEOs to call their uh, predecessors because that that could be seen as a sign of weakness. And so it's it's actually indeed quite rare for them to, to pick up the phone and call each other. So it can be quite isolating um, to to retire from the position. Um, and so he describes how, you know, like his heart was still fluttering, wondering if the phone was going to call or he was going to get some kind of message asking him, you know, a, a work-related question. And, um, and, you know, how he eventually came to terms with realizing he's better off uh, without that. But um, but uh, some of the, the other stories, I actually interviewed um, women uh, for for the, the study um, the paper that I have that's coming out soon uh, is is called the unbearable lightness of being retired, and um, and that paper is a, a study of a larger subset of CEOs and includes women, um, and is is sort of novel in that way because there aren't many women who you know, reach the position of CEO. Um, one of the individuals whose story is is shared in more detail in the book is of Claire. Um, who was the CEO of a private hospital. And at a certain point, she was forced into retiring because her board learned that she uh, was diagnosed with cancer. And so, you know, she shared the information with someone. uh, And within a few days, her board had arranged everything. And the public announcement was made that she would be retiring almost without consultation with her. It was just assumed that's what would happen. And um, and she talks about how, you know, she had worked her whole life. She had worked from the point of, of, adoles- of early adolescence. And so her entire adulthood had been spent working. And so the idea of, of not working was, was devastating. And, and at one point she said, that she didn't know which was worse, uh, the the cancer diagnosis or the uh, being forced into retiring. And and so you know there's so there's several stories that are shared there. Um, others that are more explicitly about you know this idea of being forced into retiring, but you know where like there would be you know a notice or stories in the news saying that the individual was retired when in fact, um, you know, they didn't see it that way. They just sort of got shuffled into it. Yeah, I found this to be really interesting examples from that chapter. And from the discussion of the CEO's retirement, you also bring up some terms I'm hoping you can give us more context for, which include productive aging and what is often referred to as the third age in this literature. Yeah, so... um, so yes, I, I talk about productive aging and um, and this idea that uh, that we have that is that to be successful um, we must be you know uh, committed and um, giving back economically to society um, that you know in some ways there are strict notions of productivity and um, and these strict ideas uh, really made the transition to retirement challenging for the individuals that uh, that I interviewed because you know when they tried to do what their wives did when they tried to emulate the day-to-day experiences of their you know retired friends and 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 largely um, partners or spouses, they found it um, incredibly unfulfilling because they were so used to having a sense of identity that was linked to being productive. And so this, you know, this concept of productive aging um, or successful aging has, has received a lot of ink. There's been a lot written about it in the gerontology literature, um, in the, you know, health and social science literature, um, 
and you know particularly as it relates to aging because uh you know it suggests that there are specific ways to age well and you know for those uh who are less physically able who face you know health constraints and, and issues and caregiving burdens etc you know they, they there's been a lot written about how this notion of aging um can really be quite difficult and here I think what I introduced that is is somewhat novel is just this self-imposed idea of what it means to be productive um, and busy and how that can uh, constrain uh, experiences or enjoyment in you know what has been termed the third age or this you know phase of life which is supposed to be for leisure for enjoying our time. The third age has been described as, you know, the time of life after we stop working, we're no longer caring for children um, and no longer, you know, facing the pressures of having to engage in economic activity for work. Um, and and yet it comes before the fourth age, which um, is, you know, uh, marked by physical decline and uh, deterioration and dependence. So then you move on to elite athletes. And here it's interesting because their life in their work is based around the singular goal. And often they refer to feeling like a stranger in their own bodies after retirement. So I was hoping you could talk more about them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, in sports, everything can change in the blink of an eye. Um, you know, elite athletes go from being the best in the world suddenly to being completely out of the game and their experiences um, are really quite interesting because they start to play on, you know, what we think about when we think about retirement and what it means. Um, and they also, you know, start to uh, hit home the idea that chronological age should really be decoupled from retirement. One of the key points that I, I try to make in the book um, but they also have really interesting and, uh, I think quite exciting stories that, that they shared. Um, as I mentioned, each of the, uh, elite athletes that I interviewed had participated in an Olympic games. They represented their countries around the world. Um, but at a young age, they retired from their sport. And when they returned to the quote, normal world, they describe feeling like foreigners in their bodies and in their mind because their ability to focus on an adrenaline fuel goal served them really well when they were Olympians, but it created great discontent for them when they struggled to find a new purpose in their life as retired athletes. And so, um, you know, the, the average professional athlete's career is, is over by 33 and most Olympic sports, in most Olympic sports, the retired athlete, you know, they, they retire even sooner. Um, so, you know, the stories of um, the athletes uh, that are shared in, in the book um, range from, you know, very young individuals who are still reflecting on um, on their youth and, and you know, um, talking about and sort of justifying their use of the term retirement, um, and yet making really clear that the transition was uh, both physically and emotionally devastating um, to you know individuals much much later in the life course who had been athletes early on, um, but then went on to experience a number of different careers, um, and uh, you know so the chapter sort of moves through a set of individuals that, you know, the first uh, woman whose story, uh, Allison, retires at 21. Um, the last person in the chapter, uh, Omar, retired runner, um, he, you know, uh, retires in his 70s. And it's um, a range of, of individuals who retire at, and, and are interviewed at, you know, um, midpoints in their lives um, that are shared in between. And I think you know, their stories are really, you know, stories about early retirement, but they're also stories of resilience because they each had to find new ways to engage 
with the world and to engage in uh, economic activity because, you know, quite simply, they couldn't afford uh, to, to stop working. I mean, even even the, the athletes I interviewed who had contracts and endorsements, um, none of it lasted long enough to really uh, allow them not to go back to work at some point. And, um, and so, you know, they, they talk about this idea of, you know, uh, losing, losing your sense of purpose. Um, if I can, I'll, I'll just read you a quote from Allison, who I mentioned, who retired at 21. Uh, she'd been a gymnast and, and she says, this is a quote from her. She says, it's really scary. She's talking about her retirement because you lose your sense of purpose. What's interesting about retiring is all of a sudden my name is still the same, but I'm not a gymnast anymore. I remember it being really weird the first few months when you meet people and they ask you, what are you doing? And you're like, nothing. I'm not doing anything right now. Even when I was seven years old, I was constantly working, you know? And so, you know, she, she explained um, how, you know, she entered into uh, competitive gymnastics uh, around four years old and she trained every day for at least eight hours a day. Um, or sorry, she did have one day off. Uh, Sundays she had off and those would be her day to rest uh, with her uh, fellow athletes. Um, but really it was a day to rest only so that they could, you know, be at full capacity the very next day. And they were quite, you know, limited in what they could do for fear that they might injure themselves or do anything that compromised their ability to compete again the next day. Um, you know, she moved away from her family, as many of the um, athletes I interviewed did, uh, in her, you know, before 10 um, years old. And, uh, you know, live with other families or with coaches uh, so that she could focus on this work that consumed, you know, at least a decade of her life. And then, you know, eventually went to uh, compete for her country at the Olympics and, you know, was at an all time high. And then stepping down from the podium was, for many of them, and in particular for Allison, sort of devastating experience to, you know, sort of suddenly enter the quote normal world or the real world without ever really having much experience having done so. Um, you know, each of them described how when they traveled uh, for their work, for their athletic competitions, they had teams of coaches uh, who, you know, choreographed every move they made and also structured uh, the most of their day. So, you know, they would get off the plane and somebody would, you know, maybe they had to like carry their own luggage, but that was about it. I mean, somebody had coordinated exactly like where they would go next, what they would eat, where they would eat it, what they would wear. And then of course, what their um, routine was like in terms of the training and uh, in Allison's case, in terms of the routine that she performed with her teammates. And, um, and in many ways, they were sort of like the CEOs in that uh, several of the CEOs I interviewed described how they had several administrative assistants, some had as many as three, who also, you know, planned out their day. So they would go into work having no idea what their schedule was going to be. They would just sort of, you know, get there and, um, and find it planned out for them. And often that included dinners and and, you know, all the way in, or in evening activities, which were a part of their work. So similarly, when they retired, they were sort of um, left at a loss because, first of all, they couldn't figure out how to use like a personal planner, right? Because that had all been like programmed for them. They, they knew how to use it. But, you know, some described not knowing how to program it and missing lunch dates because, you know, their their administrative assistant had always planned it for them. Um well, anyway, similarly, the athletes, uh, they had, they really struggled because they uh, had, had not had not had much time to think about uh, how to structure their day because it had always been structured for them. And because, and I would say uniquely, because their goals, their work goals were so complicated. I mean, um, you know, Olympic athletes represent the very limits of what humans are physically able to do. 
Um, and that required true dedication and commitment. And it didn't leave them time to think about what came next. Um, they couldn't really achieve and focus on their goals with a plan B in mind. They had to just keep their eyes on the prize. And that's what allowed them to uh, achieve such incredible feats in terms of their physical accomplishments. Um, you know, they all talked about how they knew they would be replaced if if they weren't up to speed. And so, you know, to keep up, like literally <laughs> up to speed, they um, they just had to focus on on their specific goals. And that just didn't leave time to think about what came next. But then when they talked about what came next, um, it was it was quite interesting because nothing that they did could give them that high that they achieved as athletes. Um, and so, you know, like I said, they all went on to do other work, but none of the other, none of the work, none of the types of job, you know, some went on into coaching. That's very common, right? Cause that's, that's what they knew how to do. Um, you know, some went on into professional business endeavors. One went into paramedicine um, you know, they went into types of work that, you know, presumably require energy and, and, um, and, and, and pressure, et cetera. But, but they described how, you know, nothing ever lived up to those highs that they felt uh, when they were competing. And that was kind of similar to the doctors who talked about the highs that they felt when they were performing surgery or, you know, consulting about a client um, or a patient, um, or, you know, making a diagnosis, that sort of, uh, the importance of their work as doctors also gave them a sort of high that just wasn't replaced by the types of decision-making that they were doing in their retirement. I want to pick up on something that you mentioned for the elite athletes, and that's the idea of being replaceable. So this shows up again when you talk about the professors. So I was hoping you could talk more about the professor's experience of retirement. Yes, yes, fantastic. Um, so to transition to the professors, right. So um, yeah, so yeah, certainly <laughs> we as academics um, are, you know, replaceable to a certain extent. And then there's this notion, uh, or not notion, there's this uh, phenomenon we have, the tenure process, which, you know, suddenly uh, means a job for life. And, and, um, and that's really interesting, right? Because even in, you know, a field where you, you know, once you have tenure, you suddenly have a job for life, there is this assumption that you'll retire. And so you, you know, while you're still alive, right? <laughs> so it's kind of, it's a little bit ironic. Um, uh, and yet it's something that uh, universities around the world are are dealing with, right? Um, this idea that uh, well, there's there's quite a bit of, of sort of conflict even uh, where uh, we're trying to make room for young academics because uh, the mature ones won't retire. And there's lots of tensions, I'm, I'm quite sure maybe not every department, but within every university in some department, you'll find a sort of um, concern being raised about uh, why won't, why won't certain people uh, leave so we can replace them. Um, and, and that's actually something I've written a bit about within medicine as well. There, the, these tensions are not unique to academia, um, but, but it, it is something uh, you might be familiar with. And um the you know the interesting thing about the um, professors that I that I interviewed um, was that pretty much each of them retired in a way that allowed them to keep working. Um, so they each actually did retire. Um, some were sort of forced, or I'd say pressured into it through you know decision making in terms of roles they had to make or, um, or pressures. Uh, what well, one of them was sort of pressured by her husband to, to shift into retirement. Um, that was Sylvia. Uh, one of them was, uh, pressured into, um, retiring 
because he, uh, you know, his department sort of cut him out of the new space they were all moving into. Um, and, uh, and one of them actually, um, faced mandatory retirement, um, because where he, the country he lived in, uh, still had that. And, um, but, but what's interesting and unique about them was that they found these ways of continuing to do their life's work. And I, um, I describe this in the book as working in place, um, a sort of play on the notion of aging in place, which is a you know common term, uh, you know, to describe uh, living at home or in a familiar setting later in life, as opposed to relocating to a sort of healthcare environment or an institution like an old age home or long term care facility. And in the book, I, I describe uh, this notion of working in place as a work lifestyle that's characterized by continuing to do the same type of work that you've always done, despite identifying as being retired. Um, and so, you know, the professors in the chapter that uh, whose stories are shared, they came from different disciplines. They lived in various regions of the world. Um, they had very different work experiences in academia, but they each shared a common interest in trying to find different ways to to um to do the most fulfilling parts of the work um to continue on so they didn't you know they didn't do uh you know many of them let go of like certain teaching responsibilities um and just focused in on on writing the last book or the last set of articles or or, or you know they didn't even say the last but the the next set of um of, of research that they wanted to focus in on. Um, and some of them did exactly the opposite. Some of them gave up on the research goals and just focused on teaching because the university still needed them. Um, a couple of them did it, you know, with no compensation at all, but because it brought them fulfillment, it made them feel needed. I mean, they were, and, um, and, uh, you know, so it, it, they, they are, are somewhat unique to the others, um, despite having this similar common ground, which is that they, their work identity and personal identities were so closely intertwined that retiring was a quite uh, devastating experience. But yet they used the factors that made them really good at what they did. The, the fact that they had always been autonomous, the fact that they had been creative, um, uh, and that they had carried out their professional endeavors in ways that they made work. Um, these were traits that helped them to readjust within their retirement and to um, sort of overcome some of the discontent that they felt by focusing in and doing um, the autonomous, creative things that they had always enjoyed doing. Another part of the professor's chapter that I found interesting, and maybe it's because I'm an academic myself, um, is this idea that David talks about his wife saying after he gets tenure, oh, now we can have a good life. And so retirement's kind of the same. People don't understand that their identity is really tied onto their work. Right. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. David explains to his first wife, you know, um, actually, no, uh, when I get tenure, I'm probably going to work harder. <laughs> and that's probably what ended their marriage, um, <laughs> as he explains. Um, because, uh, yeah, she, his wife had a really different notion of, of, um, of what an academic self was. And so, yeah, I, I talk about this idea actually across many of the different um, groups uh, that I interviewed uh, because they each had this idea that uh, who they were was was what they were, right? Um, what they did represented more than just a job. It was who they were. And um, and so, right. So, you know, you see David carries on and uh, well into, you know, uh, multiple marriages and multiple sets of children and grandchildren later, he's still working. And he talks about how he could have made a lot more money probably, you know, in another type of work. But, you know, that that wasn't his primary goal. So then um, 
in the last chapter, the last group that you look at, you look at homemakers. And here uh, you talk about sort of undefined retirement and retirement mystique. So I was hoping you could talk more about the homemakers. Yeah. So the the homemakers, like I mentioned, um, they, you know, would not fit any economist's definition of a, you know, of a of a retiree. So I, I talk about them as, as sort of undefined as sort of, you know, uh, pulling or stretching the boundaries of what we understand retirement to mean. And, um, and that's sort of important, you know, in the bigger picture, because the whole idea of the book is, um, a play on Freud's civilization and its discontents. Um, it's a sort of play on, uh, this idea that, you know, um, there's a conflict between an individual's quest for freedom and, and then societal norms that restrict our primitive instincts, right? So Freud argued that, you know, social norms, rules, laws that state, for instance, that we shouldn't commit adultery or, you know, physically harm each other, that those limit our possibilities for freedom and contentment. And yet as a society, we agree to live within specific boundaries and to follow certain norms that help maintain order. And then here we have this, this concept of retirement, this phenomenon, which is, you know, supposedly all about freedom and, and um, boundaryless. And yet uh, when we sort of agree to abide by it, then we are sort of struck with this sense of discontent. Um, as uh, for for these individuals um that i that i interviewed so you know it, it, the point is certainly not to generalize um and i you know i talk quite a bit about that um throughout the book and in the append the methodological appendix um but the the point for these individuals is that sort of freedom that was associated with retirement was quite a challenge um and the homemakers are really a sort of play on what retirement means because these women identified these women that I interviewed identified as being retired. Um, and yet, you know, they, they had all the freedom before supposedly. Right. And, um, and, you know, they made these transitions based on uh, many of them made based on their husband's retirement um, or based on social cues that they observed, like getting mail that, identified them as, you know, let po- letters in the mail that identified them as being uh, retired or going to community centers and uh, whatnot, where they were just sort of labeled as a retiree or um, encouraged to enter into activities or given discounts because of that and sort of given benefits because of it. And so they um, are a sort of interesting play on the construct because their stories illustrate unique challenges that they face, but also unique freedoms that they encountered as retirees um, and, um, and, and that sort of push us uh, as a society to maybe loosen up in terms of the ways in which we define retirement um, to say, you know, let us separate it from chronological age and, and let us also recognize that even people who aren't or haven't been paid for their work uh, still can identify with their life's calling or the work that they did, even if they weren't paid for it, as, uh, as something that is important and that when they transition away from it, it is a valid transition that, you know, deserves recognition. So, um, so to, to illustrate that point, or the sort of heterogeneity of their retirement experiences. Um, there, there's one woman who kind of um, stands out to me, which is uh, Teresa, who, uh, you know, identified as a retiree. And she explained for, to me that for her, it was actually a socially acceptable title that she found preferable to any of the others that were available to her. So as a, as a young wife and mother, she really struggled in, in that time to conform to the rigid expectations that, that she faced for being a wife. And 
um, and a mother. And, and in, you know, around the time I was interviewing her, she was really struggling to connect with her children. Um, she wasn't, she wasn't thrilled about identifying that aspect of her personal identity. She had divorced at that point, and so she described how she also wasn't particularly thrilled about identifying as a divorcee. Um, but retiree was quite appealing because it was ambiguous, and uh, and it suited the way that she preferred to identify herself publicly. And so, you know, her experience was very different than some of the others. I um, also, uh, in the chapter are stories of um, women who sort of uh, whose you know identification with being retired coincided with what other people might refer to as empty nest syndrome. Um, another uh, woman that I whose story is shared um, talks about her the challenges with being a widow and um, and how that you know impacted her transition to retirement and the way she saw it. Yeah. If we had more time, I would love to talk more about the sort of intersection of gender unpaid work and this categorization of retirement, but we'll just have to check out your paper on this, on, on your um, homemakers interviews. But I was hoping here you could kind of give us the big takeaways and the big conclusions from your book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, so, you know, the main takeaway is, um, is this, this need to sort of decouple um, our uh, association with chronological age and and retirement and um, and the need to confront the mismatch between an idealized and an actual retirement. Um, the story, the book is a, a subset of stories, right? The heart of the book are these, individual and very personal accounts of transitions to retirement. But the bigger picture is, uh, is at the societal level is to say that um, we ought not to assume that disengagement is mutually beneficial. So in, in the first chapter of the book, I, um, I plot out the gap that has emerged between uh, life expectancy and standard traditional or average retirement age across Canada, but also the U.S. and, and the EU and, and several regions of the world. And you see the pattern uh, from the 1970s through the current time. So in the last you know half century, um, a, a real gap has emerged. And, you know, it's, it's due to the fact that we live in remarkable times. We are in unprecedented we are in an unprecedented point in human history where we are now living longer than we ever have in all of human existence. And this means that we need to rethink, uh, you know, the sort of expectations that we have. And so, you know, a real quick takeaway is to say your father's retirement is not going to be reflective of what your, your own retirement is going to be like. And, you know, part of the book I talk about, um, early pension systems and the way they were designed uh, quite simply to coincide with the age that most people were already dead, right? So like when uh, retirement systems were first established, um, the point was that on average, the um, most recipient or, you know, the average recipient would already have passed away and <laughs> not be able to get it. And that's what made them sustainable. Um, and so the, you know, the takeaway is that, you know, we ought, not to undermine the social good by underestimating the true value of experienced mature workers. Today, we've been talking with Michelle Silver about her book, Retirement and Its Discontents, Why We Won't Stop Working Even If We Can. So what are you working on now, Michelle? Yeah, well, so um, thanks, Sarah, so much for asking about that. Um, I've got two projects. One is actually um, to to study further the uh, retirement mystique that that I started to um, explore in the book, um, and so that is something um, that that I'm focusing on more the sort of um, idea behind uh, the mystique that is retirement and the ways that women's work experiences are both heterogeneous and um, lead into 
a range of different types of retirement experiences. And, and so those trends I described, you know, the gap between life expectancy and, um, and, and retirement age are even, even greater when we focus in on, on women's experiences. Um, and uh, another project that I just received a short grant um, to explore is one that focuses in on the um, athletes that I mentioned and, um, and to focus there not only on the um, sort of challenges that they face uh, in retirement with regard to the you know, personal implications um, and the identity aspect, but to focus in on the physical aspects um, as well, because as much as they talked about the um, emotional, uh, you know, discontent that they experienced, um, they also talked about how challenging it was for their bodies to adjust to being retired. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, so the next um, sort of continuation of that project um, is, is a book um, that I'm working on that looks at and continues to ask questions about how perceptions about aging develop and how they influence health behaviors like uh, exercise in later years. Sound really interesting, and we look forward to reading them when they come out. So thank you for being with us today. 